0: Verse 13, here's the conclusion to a Jesus sermon. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Watch out for the false prophets They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognise them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, is like a foolish man who's built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Well, I hope you've had a great time on FAT. It appears we have. Lots of fun, right? Yeah. Fun times. Uh, Even in tiredness, you can still scream somehow. It's great. But... But of course you've probably recognised that as soon as we get into the scriptures we get into weighty things, don't we? Things that matter, things of eternal consequence. And today is no different. The theme in chapter 7 is the theme of judgement. It's what's going to happen at the end. What will happen at the end and the ultimate end is when you stand before your maker, you meet your maker and he calls you to account for your life. Because he values you and says you matter, he's going to hold you to account, as we heard the night, for your life and what you've done. And so there's this theme of destruction. Some to life, some to destruction. And so here there's a road that leads to destruction. There's two roads, right? one leads to destruction. Two trees, one is destroyed in the fire. Some will come before the Lord. They will say, Lord, Lord, as if they knew him, but they will be put out to destruction. There's two howls they look the same, but one at the final testing is destroyed. That's the theme. It's the theme of judgment, of destruction, of hell. It's not just in this sermon that Jesus talks about it. He mentions it all through the Bible. In fact, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else. So... If you don't like the theme or you don't like the topic, you've got to take it up with him. It's given lots of different ways. You said, the worm never dies, the gnashing of teeth. There is ultimately, though, therefore, no more important than how you will stand at the final judgment. It fits the context of the sermon. He's basically concluding. He's essentially got their attention by saying, There are these blessed, the good life is actually living this way. There's these people who are these citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the meek, the poor in spirit, and they don't look it, but they're the blessed ones. They will be blessed. Certainly God's their attention. Now, because there's an alternate kingdom coming in, and because everything is about to be turned upside down, and the least will become the greatest, and the last will become first, that's because... There's a new righteousness that's coming in and it's coming in in me, says Jesus, because all that the Old Testament, all that the prophets had spoken about was ultimately pointing to me. I will bring them to completion. I will fulfil those prophecies and I will bring in the new standard of righteousness and give my people a new spirit and a new heart and they will be transformed and they will live radically new lives radically new they will have a righteousness that surpasses the pharisees and the scribes a righteousness not just of the letter but of the spirit they will desire to please god and then he said and they will go out and each day they will leave before me seeking to please my father in heaven and not for the audience of men and women around them that will be their motive and in effect, he's saying now, he's saying, there, there. That's the kingdom of God I'm forming. I've given you the details of how you to live. And then he pauses and, if you like, he looks at the crowd of the congregation and he says, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? What, what are you going to do about it? I mean, are you just going to be content to kind of fold your arms and go, good sermon. Good sermon. Leave it at that. Jesus is saying the same thing to us, exactly the same thing. What are you going to do about it? No, he's saying, now is the time for action, putting my words into practice. And there's really just one decision that you need to make. You have a smorgasbord of decisions in life, countless millions, which car, which T-shirt, which job, which girlfriend, which whatever. Right? But you know what? There's only one that matters because there's only two ways to live. It looks like there's lots. No, nah, just two. You have one decision to make. What are you going to do about it? And he goes on and basically, what he does now, he says, Okay, I'll tell you what the journey is. I'm going to explain it to you. I'll show you about this. There's three scenes and an illustration. The first scene, the decision at the beginning, a thread along the way, and what happens at the end if you make that decision. And then he finishes with an illustration about a house that brings it all together and shows what, what matters for him. Let's go. First scene, here's the beginning. There's two paths. You see them? They're pretty clear enough, isn't it? Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Clear illustration, isn't it? In your mind's eye, you're walking along. along, All of a sudden, there's two gates. There's a, a big wide gate with a big broad, wide, comfortable road. That goes off beyond it. But that ends in destruction, that one. And over here, there's this tiny little one that's actually hard to find. It's narrow, it's confined, it's small, off to the side here. And you know, behind it is this little path, this, this narrow, confined path that goes off, and you hardly see where it goes into the thickets and the bushes. You've got a choice. Which gate do you choose? Which one do you go for? It's very clear in context what he's saying. I'm the gate. I'm the gate. I'm the way, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Then the context of the whole sermon. Blessed are those who are persecuted in my name, he's saying. It's those who align themselves with me as my followers. Or he says, you have heard it say, but I say to you. that is, they're going to be the, It's got to do with whether you'll enter through Jesus. He is the narrow gate. And, to stay, and you have to stay with him and it's a narrow path your entire life. You can never leave Jesus. He is the only way that leads to life. Well, a few things that means, doesn't it? It's narrow at the entry, and it's narrow all the way along. It means a few things for us. I picture there, it's like a turnstile. <laughs> You've got to leave a lot of stuff behind to get in. A lot of stuff behind. You've got to leave the crowd, the many. And so the challenge is, are you, are you too cool for Jesus? Are you too cool for him? Do you need the applause and the support of your mates and your friends and your peers? And ultimately, are you too cool for him? And you want to be on the comfortable road with the many. There'll be lots of people along the way and you'll have a great time. It will appear at first anyway. This way is a lonely road. Few travel along it. It will not be cool. You will be persecuted. Right. That's the first thing. You have to leave the crowd, the cool road. You have to leave worldliness. This kingdom has different values. This Jesus has different values. In the world, it's beauty, it's wealth, it's power. That's the mark of this kingdom. In Jesus' kingdom, it's about humility, mourning over a world that's broken and meekness. You're going to have to leave this world Are you willing to leave the world and all that it holds before you and all its idols? And you have to leave yourself even. You have to leave your pride. You actually have to say, I can't do it. You have to become poor in spirit. I cannot do it myself. I'm unable without Jesus to come before a holy God. And so you have to leave your pride. And as the Scriptures argues, that is the hardest thing you'll ever have to do. There's the challenge. But the path is narrow all the way along, isn't it? It's not just like you enter through a narrow kind of little turnstile. You get there, you get rid of those things and suddenly it broadens out to a comfortable road. Now, as the great evangelist chapo used to always say, the first 50 years are the hardest. Basically it always picked the age that he was. The first nineteen years are the hardest. The first eighty two years are the hardest. The point is, it's what is the distinctive of this way that he's been talking about an entire sermon? Narrow. It's narrow. It's hard. It confines you. You see, poverty of spirit is not easy. Prayer is not easy. Righteousness is not easy. To be transformed into God's inner attitude is not easy. This stuff is alien to us. And so realigning ourselves under a genuine conversion of God is going to be restrictive. The problem with me saying it's hard is you can think unpleasant and that's not true. You see, you think, you could think, oh, narrow, that means dull, boring. I hope you've seen on fat, that's not the case. I, just watching your party last night for me it was a great illustration. Adrian said to me, he said, just see them dance. You know what? They just can't wait to get to the nightclubs. And they think, because they think that's where it's going to be at. Yep, going to be awesome. Smelling beer stained carpets, people who stink, people who um, have to drink a lot of alcohol to have a good time, people who are sleazy. Welcome to the nightclub scene. If you haven't been there, you soon will. And suddenly you go, I can't believe it we had infinitely more fun with our mates on a youth group camp without any alcohol, just partying, right? No, no, no. The road's narrow, but it ain't boring or dull. That's what it's not. No, to know the living and true God as your Lord and Saviour is wonderful. To call him uh, brother, Jesus, Jesus' brother and friend is wonderful. To call God your father, Abba, is extraordinary. And of course, the deepest joys are in relationships. And there are Christians that you will journey with that you'll have wonderfully deep relationships with. And they are profound. The joy of having your sins forgiven? Is that boring or dull? I don't think so to see temptations reducing as you continue in, in the Christian life, to see the things that used to hold on to you completely disappear, it does happen, trust me. Do you think that's dull and boring? Oh, no. But Jesus is saying this, count the cost. He's not some sales guy who's trying to like put things in the fine print so you don't see. No, 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 there's two gates. One's broad and wide, and over to the side's a narrow way, and it's costly. Before you enter it, count the cost. You see, the key also, though, is not the path itself, but its destination. Many people get caught up in the path, it's comfort, at ease, it's popularity, their peer group, and they forget. You see, they, they forget where it's going. They compare each other on the broad road to each other and they feel pretty good when you're on the broad road because you just compare with each other. Oh, I'm a bit better than him, a bit worse than him. But you're on the broad road. And don't you see? Unless you join the small road, the small gate, the narrow path, you're already always on the broad road and your destruction is fixed. It's set. Jesus says, enter the narrow gate. Enter the narrow gate. You see, you will not get to the narrow gate unless you deliberately choose to enter it and stay on it. You do not get there by worshipping nature or drifting into salvation through without a decision and a commitment. And you certainly don't get there by a life of selfishness where you live for yourself. No, you only get there through Jesus, through repenting of your sins and trusting in him. In fact, so committed is he that you will get this one point, he's spending the rest of the sermon saying the same thing different ways. And that's what he does. The next point is, you know what? Right when you're there, you've got a threat. Because there you are at the two gates and you know what's there? Well, there's other people with you, around you. They're called false prophets. Look at verse 15. Watch out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. See, right there, while you're trying to make the decision about which road to go on, there are these false prophets, but what's the problem? They look like sheep. They look like everybody else. You can't tell them apart. And that's exactly how it works, isn't it? If you had a pastor or a minister who got up the front and he told you, you know what, you ought to lie and gossip and live wildly... Straight away, you'd know not to listen to him. But it never works like that. No. They appear godly. They pray. They appear to have a godly character at first, the marks. But they're actually ferocious wolves. And they'll lead you away from getting on that, through that narrow gate. They'll say, no, come another way. We'll come back off the path once you're on it. And they'll deceive you. And Jesus and Paul, they're always among us. And the the key word is watch out. How do you recognise them? How do you avoid them? Well, verse 16 to 20. By their fruit you will recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Two trees that look exactly the same, Jesus paints the same picture again. They look the same. And Jesus' listeners knew there was the, black, the blackthorn tree. It had little blackberries that looked just like grapes. They also knew the thistle who had flowers that from a distance looked like figs. That is, the two trees look the same from a distance. It's only when you go and try and make wine out of the blackberries, you suddenly where it's not grapes. Or when you get close to the tree, you realise it's flowers, not figs. And that's his point. His point is you have to get close and you have to see what's the key? The key is what do the false prophets do? What's their practice? Now, in context, the first thing you'll notice, they won't be advocating take the narrow path, trusting Jesus. They won't be doing that. But also, their character. You will know it by their fruit. That is, they won't be humble, righteous, peacemakers, and that's what you need to watch out for. Now, he's not saying, I don't think, go on a, a kind of a um, false preaching hunt, trying to work out every false preacher, But he is saying, watch out, be on your guard and examine what's being taught and by those who teach it. Uh, Then he comes at another angle. It's a scene change. It moves to the end because there are two, two claimants who come before Jesus at the judgment seat, two claimants, listen to their claims. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did, not, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Once again, a really clear picture in your mind's eyes. Two people who come before the Lord and he's thrown on the day of judgment. The first has an impressive uh, record of spiritual experience. They've prophesied, exercised demons, performed miracles, all in Jesus' name. And you know what? Jesus doesn't deny it. He doesn't deny it, and nor should we. And nor should we be surprised by the key word there that even today, it's many, many. I find that scary. It's many will come on that last day and with the right language and a performance and spiritual wonders in Jesus' name, but they are not genuine disciples. The tragedy is these people have deceived themselves. They genuinely think that they're believers. They clearly expect to get admission into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that is scary, isn't it, that you can so deceive yourself to think you'll get in, but find out right at the end, at the very entrance place to the kingdom of heaven, you don't get in. What is the essential characteristic of a true believer? You pick it in the story? It's not loud profession. It's not spiritual triumph. It's not a great spiritual experience. The, key, the chief characteristic is obedience. The one who does the will of my Father. That's it, pure and simple. And that's the point of this talk. And that's the point of Jesus' conclusion. It's the one who lives consistently with their prayer, Your will be done. On earth as in heaven. Unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to live by the Spirit, not just the letter. You have to obey Jesus' words. That is, you just can't listen to these words and admire, discuss, or debate them. It has to be done. Self delusion is very dangerous. You make loud professions. Have all these experiences, and yet obedience is neglected. Sooner or later in life, you'll you'll feel the weight of that. I remember in year eleven, I saw a, I'd seen a youth group grow very quickly like, from about fifteen to two hundred. I stood with two other mates before the two hundred, and we each gave our testimony. Other two men. With tears, weeping, professed radical conversions. Radical conversions. Two of my closest mates. And yet, within months, they were no longer followers of Jesus. Why? Well, they never obeyed, they didn't put it into practice. They didn't put it into practice. See, and that's the threat. You see, you can delude yourself. You know, you, you take your spiritual temperature off your friends, measure how you're going off them rather than how you're going with God. Jesus already warned about that yesterday. And you, your success can grow. Maybe others around you are saying you're good, you ought to be in ministry, you ought to serve, you ought to be in leadership. And yet, on the obedience front, you've been sliding. You've not been doing the will of your Father. Your prayer, your reflection on your own spiritual health, your repenting has all been sliding. You've been sliding off the narrow path. It's true that no one enters the kingdom because of obedience. But it's equally true that no one enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It's true that saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. But it's equally true that true God's grace in a person's life inevitably leads, results in obedience. Any other way cheapens grace and it turns into something unrecognisable. See, cheap grace, grace preaches forgiveness without repentance, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, results without obedience. And one of the great threats to the church is in our generation, I include myself in that, is a generation that has struggled with obedience, who struggled obedience. We have the name of Christ, but we struggle to do what he wills. Do you take the measure of your faith by comparing yourselves with those around you, or do you measure yourself against God's word? Well, Jesus finishes with an illustration to hopefully help you see it. Because only the one who does the will of Father will enter the kingdom. We know it's an illustration because of the therefore, verse 24. Therefore. And he tells you about two houses. Two houses that look exactly the same on the outside. Same paint. Same shape. Probably pretty clean, neat little driveways. Um, However, one has a foundation of bedrock and the other one is on sand. And they only tell the difference when the most severest of storm hits. And instantly one house is destroyed and one house stands. And many people keep focusing on about the fact that it's all, the foundation is the point. But actually, the focus is not quite centred on the foundations, that is, the rock versus the sand. That's not the big point of this story, but actually upon the builders and their projects. you see that? The man who builds upon the shifting foundation, the sand, is likened to a person who hears Jesus' words but doesn't put it into practice. Right. whereas the man who builds his house upon the rock is like a, a man who hears the words of Jesus and puts it into practice the difference is obedience and disobedience pure and simple yeah the rock may represent Jesus' words and the storm pictures God's final judgment but his point is clear. What kind of a builder are you? What kind of a builder are you? We've all today this week heard Jesus speak. So we all experienced that. The question is, what will you do with those words? Will you stay on the broad road that ends in destruction? Will you continue to be unproductive branches that are burnt by the fire? Will you be those who are disobedient and ultimately sent away from Jesus? Or, you'll, or you, will or you be a man who didn't put into practice and so at the judgment your house is destroyed, you have nothing left, it's shattered? So is Jesus trying to frighten people into the kingdom? In one sense the answer is yes, isn't it? Um, some come to Jesus because it's attractive to have their sins forgiven. Some the depth of His love and integrity of life. But men can't. Many come because they're concerned for their eternal well-being. Ultimately, heaven versus hell. And you see, if you were sleeping soundly and a tsunami was coming, and I came knocking on your door. Uh, would you accuse me of trying to frighten you? You might think I'm mad. You might not believe me, but you'd never accuse me of trying to frighten you. You may choose to not leave your house because you love your house too much. It's too comfortable. You think I'm a fool, so you wouldn't leave. You think I'm a liar, but you would not accuse me of trying to frighten you. And similarly with Jesus, he concludes his sermon by urging, uh, exhorting, saying, choose the narrow gate. Whatever you do, stay on the narrow path. Is he trying to frighten us? There's a tsunami coming. Act. That's his point. Put my words into practice. You may not believe in hell and say so you accuse Jesus of being a liar or a fool or a lunatic. You may be too attached to your sin. That you'd be too it's too difficult for you to leave it. But don't accuse him of trying to frighten you. The real issue is what's the truth behind Jesus' words? The truth which prompts his warning either there is a hell to avoid or there's not and if there's not then jesus credibility is shattered because he speaks as i said at the beginning more about hell twice as much about hell than anybody else the page of the bible strain at metaphor to help us understand there is a heaven and there is a hell The place of outer darkness, the place where the worm will not die, the place of exclusion and rejection, the place of burning and torment, the place of weeping and grinding of teeth. It's not trying to tell you hell's coordinates, place it on a map. It's just trying to describe the new heaven and the new earth on one side and the other place, this place called hell, on the other. And the metaphors of the Bible struggle to do it, but that's all we've got. But if you're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount, it ends with a threat of judgment and we have to work out what do we want to do. Holy fear is a right response. As Paul says, we're saved because Jesus acted as our substitute. He died on our behalf. It presents a crucified, risen Saviour who forgives repentant men and women and gives them a life and enables them to live to those ideals. We must remember the Sermon on the Mount came in the context of Matthew's Gospel, which began with, to Mary, she will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Sermon on the Mount doesn't end in despair. It ends in wonderful hope that if you've entered through the narrow gate and you trust in Jesus, you will be saved from your sins and you will enter the kingdom of heaven and have life. But as soon as it does that, it has to tell you about the other, that there's another way of living. I'm done now. I'm going to close. But I'm going to say there's four groups of people here. There's two ways of living, really, but we've broken to four just to make things tricky. Here you go. The first group of person is a Christian. You came away in camp, you're a Christian. You've been encouraged. It's been great to reflect upon Jesus as your Lord and you want to keep serving as you've done in the past. Praise God. The second person is the person who came away in name, you're a Christian in name only you weren't living for Jesus maybe you entered the narrow gate but now you've certainly wandered off the narrow path you need, you realize you need to be brought to get back on you want to confess your sin and repent and turn back to Jesus and get back on the narrow path you want to put his words into practice you want to be a builder who not just hears the words but puts it into practice, right? That's the second person. The third person is the person who knew they came away on camp and they weren't a follower of Jesus. They weren't his disciple. They weren't a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, but they want in. You want to enter the narrow gate. You want to put your trust in Jesus. You want to go to heaven. You want that kingdom. You want the forgiveness of sins. You want to be washed clean. You want all your sin erased to be washed completely, spotlessly clean. And God's promise is he'll do just that. He will come in and change you from the inside out and you will get Christ's righteousness. That's the third group. The fourth group is the group who says, I'm not yet ready to make a decision. That's okay. That's fine. Although... (laughs) Just remember Jesus' words. Um, if you do not enter through the narrow gate, you are on the broad road. So do think through Jesus, examine Jesus, but do make a decision. I want, I'll, I'm going to close in prayer for each of you. For the first, the Christian, thank the Lord. Repent for the second, those who realise they were in Christian name only. We'll pray for the third, of those who've come to Christ and for the fourth also. But I want to do something a bit different. The second group and the third group, with your heads bowed, I'll get you to stand up. There's something really helpful in actually giving a physical action to what you're wanting to do. All right? Give a physical expression. As Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the, heavenly, the holy angels. Surely, with everyone else's heads bowed, you could stand up. It's a helpful physical activity for you. So I'll pray through the four of us. You work out which one you are and you work out what you ought to do. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sermon on the mountain where Jesus reminds us about the kingdom of heaven that has begun in Christ Jesus by his death and resurrection but will be brought in its fullness when he's revealed with his angels, when he comes in glory. And we pray that we would be those uh, who trust in him and we pray that we're those who continue to journey with him and grow as we mature in him. Father, I pray for each of the different people here before us. We're all at different spots. Father, I pray for the first group. We think of those who... You have called to yourself, they know you as Lord and Saviour, they call you Father. We thank you that you have blessed them and that they have been strengthened and encouraged uh, on this time away. We pray that you would continue to strengthen them and build them up for Christ Jesus' sake and you would enable them to continue going on living holy lives that are pleasing to you. We thank you for them and we thank you for what you've done in their life and continue to do in their life. Father, we think of the second group, that those among us who now, if they are in that group, they ought to stand, realise that they need to make a change, that they have professed Christ in the past with a decision but they have wandered away. They were not living as your people, They were living in the world. And Father, they want to say they're sorry. They want to repent for not living your way. Please forgive them and enable them by your strength to come back to living your way, to putting your words into practice. We thank you that in Jesus they are forgiven, they are welcomed back and that you rejoice with the angels that they step back onto the narrow path, on the path that leads to life. We do pray that you would um, give them friends around them that would encourage them and support them in this journey and so they would continue to walk in a way that is worthy of you. Father, we pray for the third group, the group that came away not knowing you. We ask that they would stand. Those who have realized at camp that they want life. They want to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, they want their life to go on forever, where there is the feast and the banquet and much joy. Father, We repent, we put our trust in you, we say wash our sins away through the blood of Jesus. Please enable us to trust him by faith, to trust in what he has done for us, in not in anything that we can do, but to trust in his work on the cross for us. Father, we pray... Uh, We give thanks, Lord, for those this week who have crossed from death to life, who have left the broad road and entered the narrow road. And we're with the angels in rejoicing that their names now are written in the book of life. And we pray that you would keep them, that you would uh, enable them to persevere, give them brothers and sisters that would uh, support them in this journey. And we pray that on the last day we will be with them in paradise. Lastly, Father, we pray for those among us who've come away. Maybe they came away where Jesus was just a swear word. We thank you that they've had a chance to read the scriptures, to think upon you and to ask the question about where they stand. We pray, Father, that you continue to be with them, help them to continue to investigate what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Give them open hearts. Give them an integrity that continues to challenge what is the truth here and to seek genuine answers. We pray that they would seek you and by your grace that they would find you. And Father, we pray for all of us and we ask that you would keep us until that great day when we would see Jesus in all his glory as the Son of Man, empowered and enthroned, and we pray that you would take us uh, and keep us safe until that great day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of quick things. Uh, if, if you're in groups two or three particularly, do tell a leader or a friend probably, so that we can get the support around you to make sure that you continue on living as you ought to. I'm done.